Prison Radio Show, a part of CKUT's Off the Hour. Prison Radio has been on the air for more than 10 years. Prison Radio seeks to confront the invisibility of prisons and prisoner struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, and criminalization, and by challenging our ideas about what are prisons and the people inside our jails. Prison Radio is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties with incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation and that our understanding of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. We invite anyone who is interested in collaborating on programming to contact us. Those who have been affected by the prison system in any way are encouraged to get involved. You can email news at ckut.ca or prison at ckut.ca or you can call us at 514-448-4041 extension 6788. You're listening to CKUT Montreal Community Campus Radio located on 90.3 FM on the dial and www.ckut.ca online.
welcome, to, hi, and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT ninety point three FM. I am Gene. I'm Noah, and we are your hosts for today's show. We would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, Abenaki, and Mohawk territories. Today we'll be airing the recording of the launch of the 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar that focuses on the theme of health care that took place in Montreal on Thursday, December 13, 2018, 6.30 p.m. at Cupert Concordia. But first, here are some headlines. Anarchists held noise demonstrations in cities across Turtle Island on New Year's Eve. In Ontario, the end of 2018 marked the 10th year that Anarchists in Hamilton have organized prisoner solidarity demonstrations. Anarchists in Hamilton offered this report back. This year, folks decided to go to Vanier Centre for Women, where about 30 people gathered at a nearby parking lot and crossed the rainy streets to collect at the disgusting compound of buildings that make up the super jail Maplehurst Correctional Complex. Together with Vanier, close to 1,800 people are imprisoned there. Folks chose to walk around the long way, passing by Vanier first. As soon as the first block of cells was approached, the celebrations began. Fireworks, Roman candles, beats from the samba band, and loud, passionate chants. It was cold and rainy, but that didn't seem to matter. A last-minute decision was made to not go all the way around to the men's side of the facilities because a very large fence was recently installed preventing access. So after a good long pause, sharing sweet moments with people inside and with each other, folks turned around and marched back out. Folks then gathered at a park in the north end of Hamilton, near Barton Street Jail a jail that is right beside the discount grocery store with an abundance of rotting produce, a block west of the hospital that doesn't have the capacity to deal with the traumas of poverty, and surrounded by a handful of tent cities that have only been growing since the attack of gentrification. A jail that is in plain sight, in the heart of central Hamilton, but somehow overlooked by developers and real estate vultures who are pitching the neighborhood as a blank slate. It's 10 p.m. and about 50 people are masked up and ready to celebrate. Words written by a friend inside were read aloud, while the jail loomed against a black sky. Folks marched along the usual route, stopping at the Ferguson Street Bridge. As usual, a few pig vehicles flanked to the group on either side. Every year, the Ferguson Street Bridge is taken, and every year on that bridge, time races to a halt. For a few fleeting moments, it's as if those walls don't exist. The jail doesn't loom over us from this angle. As fireworks exploded in unison with paint splattering, the beat of the band carried cheers through the window of the giant cage and into the ears of people locked up inside, a few of which could be seen dancing, jumping, and waving back to us. Folks continued to the other side, stopping one last time for a, final of, a finale of celebration. For a few moments, it seemed like the pigs were going to get confrontational, but most people left the scene unharmed, except for two people who were needlessly harassed. 2018 was a hell of a year for a lot of folks. It's bittersweet, a time to reflect, a time to celebrate, a time to rage, and a time to remember. The state never gives us freedom, it only takes it away. In the words from a inside, there are no easy wins against such a powerful institution, but there is value in the fight through the clarity it brings to our struggles and the courage it gives us in facing repression. So here's to 2019 and to a world without prisons. This week, the RCMP kidnapped more than a dozen people at a checkpoint on unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. The checkpoint was erected by Gidomten clan of the Wet'suwet'en nation to keep out Coastal Gaslink. Coastal Gaslink wants to build a 700-kilometer-long natural p- gas pipeline that extends from Dawson Creek in the north that would run through several indigenous nations' territories to an LNG terminal near Kitimat on the coast. 
There were at least 12 confirmed arrests, including an elder, and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs were blocked from their own territories. Gidamton clan's spokesperson Molly Wickham was arrested on her land. She, along with other arrestees, will not be released. They are being brought to Prince George to stand before a colonial justice of the peace. For more information or to donate to the legal fund, visit unistoten.camp. This week, DRC, okay, sorry. Rattler is Oglala Locata from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Rattler arrived at the Oseti Sakowin resistant camp as a water protector in September 2016. On January 23, 2017, Rattler was charged for the work he engaged in as a key to, uh, to protect land, water, people, and treaties against militarized police and mercenaries working for the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline was intended to go through the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. Despite the damage done to sacred sites, Lakota burial sites, treaty lands of multiple indigenous nations, rich to the Lakota living on the reservation, and numerous violations of human and environmental rights. Rattler was charged with civil disorder and using fire to commit a felony. Civil disorder and using fire to commit a felony is a charge that only has been applied for movement works such as the American Indian Movement, Black Liberation Movement, Vietnam protests, and to the water protections. On October 27, 2016, militarized police illegally raided 1851 Treaty Camp, and barricades were lit to keep the militarized police from further endangering the unarmed encampment. Logs were lit on the bridge. Rattler, Little Feather, Brenda Miller Castillo, Bravo, and Angry Bird were all given the same charges, facing more than years in prison in federal prison. Little Feather and Rattler chose the better of two evils, a non-cooperating plea deal, as in no cooperation with feds. Both received three years for nonviolent conduct as water protectors, keeping people safe from violence and stopping further desecration of land and water. Red Fawn Fallis also took a non-cooperating plea deal of five years for a gun planted on her by an informant on October 27th. Angry Bird and Dion have also accepted non-cooperating plea deals. We must not let the sacrifices of these water protectors be in vain. We thank all those around the world that committed themselves to be in the no dipole camp and we thank all those that continue to support water protectors as the movement goes on into federal prisons. Free Rattler, free Little Feather, free Red Dawn, Red Fawn, sorry, free Dion Ortez, free Angry Bird, free Bobble, free all political prisoners, free all land defenders. You can donate to the Commissary of Water Protector Rattler through his support campaign at freerattlernodepot.com or send him a letter at Michael Marcus, Number 06280-073, FCI Sandstone. Next up, we will air the recording of the launch of the 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Prisoners, Political Prisoners Calendar that focuses on the theme of health care that took place in Montreal Thursday, December 13, 2018. The calendar is a joint fundraising and educational project between outside organizers in Montreal, Toronto, Baltimore, New York City, and political prisoners. In a society where those in power profit from the dispossession of the most marginalized, we have to question the real purpose of criminalization and prisons. 
Prisons tear people away from our communities. Those who already live precariously are used as scapegoats for the ills caused by capitalism, colonialism, racism, and heteropathology. Instead of addressing increasing disparities, despite our immense collective wealth, our governments continue to invest in prisons, turning them into a profitable industry that operates as a modern form of slavery, as denounced by the U.S. prisoners who launched a major strike earlier this year. Healthcare and care are highlighted in this year's certain days calendar. For those locked away inside prisons, but also for immigration detention centers, trapped at militarized fences and borders, displaced on reservations and by ongoing colonialism, brutalized by the police and the injustice system, violence and dehumanization mean illness and lack of access to dignified care. Health in all of its dimensions, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, environmental, community, is fundamental to all liberation. The event was co-organized by Certain Days Collective and the Caring for Social Justice Collective. Speakers were Helen Hudson, member of the Certain Days Collective, Bill Van Driel, member of the Solidarity Across Borders. The Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar is a joint fundraising, uh, fundraising and educational project between outside organizers Organizers in Montreal, Hamilton, New York, and Baltimore, in partnership with a political prisoner being held in maximum security prison in New York State, David Gilbert. Co-founders Robert Seth Hayes and Herman Bell were released from prison in 2018. The Caring for Social Justice Collective is a recently formed collective based in the Teoteke, Montreal, organized around issues related to social justice and health care. Email Swan non la justice social at riseup.net. The proceeds from the calendar will go to Adamer, a prisoner support organization in Palestine, and release aging people in prison. RAP, a campaign mobilized around the releasing of aging prisoners. For more information, go to https slash slash days. Um, so this event is put on or co-animated by a new collective called the Collective Soignon de Justice Sociale, on the Glade Caring for Social Justice Collective. So we're a group of folks newly formed, made up of people mobilizing around issues relating to health and access to health care. Um, and predominantly we're organizing for accessible and dignified health care for all and working to establish a health care system that's truly accessible and free from discrimination and power structures. Based on the premise that healthcare needs to be centered on those that it serves, and imagining a, a healthcare system based on solidarity, social justice, community, and free from hierarchical power. If folks want more information about that, you can talk to me after, and I can redirect you to where info can be found. So my name's Lee. I'm going to speak a little bit about the context of like healthcare, and then we have Helen, who's from the Certain Days Calendar Collective, and Bill, who's here from Solidarity Across Borders. Great. So my part's going to be a little interactive because that's my style of animation, and I don't like talking at people, and also because I'm in exam land. So I want to ask the question, okay, so the theme of the calendar this year is healthcare. And the theme, and the calendar predominantly focuses on political prisoners and like justice for prison, prison abolition more broadly. So my question to like start off a broad conversation is what is the link between those things? Why is talking about the links between healthcare and prison and prison abolition important? Okay, cool. Well, why would you think that like a group of people working on healthcare access, this collective, would be interested in putting on an event like this? 
<laughs> no idea. We all know it. We just don't want to see it. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to challenge the idea that we're the authorities and you are not. There's no wrong answer. What? <laughs> Great. Okay, I can, I can talk at you then. We can go with that. Okay, so as healthcare providers and folks who are organizing around healthcare, we need to understand the history that informs the current healthcare system that we have. So the history of healthcare in Canada and of Western medicine more broadly um, is one that's built on systems of power. Lots of them, and we can talk about examples in a few minutes. And our practice of healthcare today is a continuation of those systems of power. So we need to expand the idea of what accessible healthcare looks like beyond just, it is financially affordable, which is obviously very important, beyond it just being geographically accessible, which is obviously very important, but also to include analysis of systems of power and the ways in which those broad structures and those big isms inform the way that healthcare is practiced um, and accessed. So there are lots of ways in which like our healthcare system right now is inaccessible to folks, especially those marginalized, including like folks in prison and people who are marginalized and incarcerated. Um, and yeah, so like as folks who are working on healthcare access, it's important to think about those accesses. When I was like thinking about what to talk about in relationship to this, um, the biggest thing that was emerging in my thought process was the ways in which health and healthcare provision has been used as a tool of social control. Can folks think of any examples in which healthcare provision or access to healthcare has been used as a tool of social control? Like anything to do with psychiatry or mental health, right? Yeah, do you want to elaborate on that? that there's like one way that the brain should look and that <laughs> there's one way of acting as mentally sane in our society and if you deviate from that norm it's either medicalized by the psychiatric industry or criminalized by being sent to prison so there's lots of examples of that can folks think of other ways that like the healthcare industry or healthcare practice has been used to as a way of social control I think uh we're seeing it more and more, but that the waiting uh, list, the waiting lines are expanding, but it's being institutionalized to create a certain, you have to wait to have a service so you go to private. So it's a way to do a lobby to enrich the, the companies of uh, the health companies. So I see it that way. Um, but uh, maybe I'm less shy now, but I can go back to the first question of the, <laughs> the, the theme and the link between the care I think there's so many links between care and uh, healthcare and incarceration, just in terms of uh, the quality of uh, health mm -hmm. and how your health can deteriorate so much in those situations. But also, more generally, I cheated and had a peek at the calendar. It's not an exam. We're here to learn from each other. No exams. But the whole concept of care and how to to take among collectively and like that needs to be promoted and just yeah, not just the idea of healthcare but just care in general. Yeah. Cool. Other thoughts? Yeah, I think that brings up a, 
an interesting point about um, who has access to care, right? I mean, that, that is the question that I'm posing. But um, when we think about prisons and the role of prisons in isolating certain members of society from the rest of society, that that's not a healthy condition by any means, right? Like, we can talk about the access to care within prisons, which is obviously outrageous. Um, you know, like, there's not enough medical professionals or practices of care outside of Western medicine within prisons for incarcerated people. The access to care is, like, basically non-existent from what I understand, but that's not my specialty, and hopefully other folks can speak more to that. Um, but if we think about the institution of prisons and its role in society as being a, a space of segregation and isolation for deviant people and deviant bodies, that's not a, that's not a term or a condition for health and healing. And it's absolutely not a term for like community care and community healing. Um, so like as health, as people interested in healthcare, I mean this collective is working predominantly on healthcare, we're interested in like finding um, the tension points between care and community <coughs> and who, who is ignored from that conversation um, and incarcerated folks within an institution of power like prisons and the criminal justice system are like an obvious example of communities that need to be included in these conversations. Do folks have other thoughts on like the ways in which healthcare is related to social control? Yeah. Well, you know, getting back to prison, like just the access to healthcare for prisoners for different uh, conditions such as HIV or tuberculosis mm -hmm. or you know uh, serious conditions like cancer is uh, you know, can be politically or arbitrarily decided uh, based on how they powers that we feel about either group prisoners or political prisoners. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is, you know, sometimes the staff, the healthcare staff in prison, you know, feel that their job is to punish prisoners and they act like the guards rather than like, you know, healthcare workers. Uh, and that's <coughs> obviously very detrimental to You think people act like that outside, like healthcare workers act like that outside of the <laughs> <laughs> I'm agreeing. I'm, I'm nodding along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of the ways in which <coughs> prisons and the people within the staff of prisons are, are there to control certain bodies um, and how that like fundamentally undermines human agency and human dignity. Um, so, I mean, um, any, other, any other thoughts about these concepts? Any other ideas or examples of like how the practice or institution of health is used to control certain populations? Yeah. I don't know if it's cheating if I'm probably collective, but. <laughs> There's no cheating, people. <laughs> Popular education, we like all have knowledge. And I think the other element is also like who ends up being, um, who ends up being physicians, who ends up primarily. Totally. Mainly because in terms of like the kind of class reality mm -hmm. like that impacts on how that has an impact on social control. So uh, there are studies clearly that show that people who are physicians, at least in Canada, come from generally uh, much more privileged backgrounds on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And so they end up being able to decide on, again, when we're talking about like what's quote unquote normal and what's not, and uh, characterizing deviant behavior, again, in quotes, that mm -hmm. they're the ones who are kind of controlling that. So it's basically institutionalized. Social control, essentially. 
Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's replicated within medical schools. Um, the curriculums that are taught to like medical students from a variety of medical disciplines ingrains the idea of whose bodies are positive and whose bodies are to blame for their negative health outcomes and whose bodies are supposed to be controlled and manipulated by healthcare practitioners. Um, so yeah, it absolutely like is institutionalized in the ways that these curriculums are created. And who has access to go to medical schools are people who typically have like more class privilege and racial privilege, and are people who can who view the Western model of medicine as one that's culturally relevant and accessible to them. Um, which reminds me that I forgot to do a territorial acknowledgement that's on my phone and not on this piece of paper, which is why I forgot. <laughs> but we can do that in a second. Um, but that ties really, really nicely into the idea of like the main practice of medicine in this country is that of a Western model of medicine. But the land that we are on is colonized and stolen land from indigenous communities. And most practices of indigenous medicine does not conform, does not align with like the Western practice of medicine. Um, yeah. Do folks have other thoughts? I had a more positive thought for healthcare and more like in the thinking of like vaccination campaigns in countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan. I, I'm not sure so sure if it's social control, but it's it's definitely trying to control people to do something that hopefully would have a benefit outcome in terms of eliminating some some communicable diseases. That was one thought that I had. Mm -hmm. Difference of other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, in terms of accessibility, a bit on what you were saying to bounce back, uh, the access to information, so not only to education, but the control of the information that's given to given to the, the patients. Mm -hmm. So even when you have access, well, there's a, a control of like those specific words, the name of the medication, the name of blah blah, blah and mm -hmm. like you're in front of. Uh, Specialist, and you're not a specialist, so you have to listen with that hierarchy and like have no no means of saying no, no means of arguing because it's a complete word that you don't understand. And yeah, you being <laughs> yeah, the obscuring of knowledge <coughs> and information. I think that's especially true in the context of prison, right? Because folks don't have as much choice as they do on the outside. Um, in terms of like who their healthcare practitioners are or their access to like certain interventions or medications. Yeah. That, that's, I think that's a great thing that you mentioned. Um, there was something positive regarding this. The country of Portugal decided to subscribe to, for every citizen in Portugal a free subscription to a service called UpToDate, mm. which is um, it's sort of an mm -hmm. encyclopedia, not in layman's language necessarily. They do have a layman's section, but to sort of have the most up-to-date, um, um, like best practices and so on, it's an American mm -hmm. resource, but they've decided let's give it to everyone so that there's less asymmetry between uh, healthcare teams and, and patients. Mm. Interesting. Do folks have other thoughts? Mm -hmm. Oh, you, you want to add something? Ah. Go ahead. Ask 
point de vue différent sur la... Final thoughts about this concept before we move on to the speakers? I think there's one thing I, I don't know. One recent example, maybe kind of bouncing off of what was just said, was I don't know if people have heard about it, but uh, there was a kid, a young, young person, a young adult, um, who was in, uh, I believe it was municipal detention last year, I forget the, uh, the person's name, uh, who was detained for some ridiculous. Thing. Uh, basically, was in municipal detention. Um, uh, has sickle had sickle cell disease, um, and uh, was a black kid. And uh, they basically, at one point, apparently, he was kind of crying out for help because he was in a lot of pain. They basically ignored um, you know, the, whoever was there, whether it's guards or the cops, I don't remember. They basically ignored his pleas, and then he was basically found dead. Investigation is still ongoing, but the family uh, clearly kind of went to the you know, publicly said wondering whether 
the, they, they, they ignored his underlying illness and they kind of ignored him also just based on racial consideration. So it's another aspect again where they kind of just, it's here this person basically died because of the fact that um, they got to choose and they don't have the training to be able to decide who needs help or not. I did actually want to more formally acknowledge that we're on the unceded land of the Kanyakahaga people, uh, known to some as the Mohawk people, but the original people of the land that many of us now know as Montreal. And something that I think is always important to do, whatever the topic that's being discussed, but when we're discussing health on the one hand and prisons on the other, in both of those topics, keeping in mind colonization and keeping in mind the experience of indigenous people in both the health and the prison system, I think is like pretty, pretty fundamental. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to start there. I'm gonna go back and do a sort of, you know, come, come around back to the topic by starting to talk a little bit about the calendar as a project and how we came to this theme. So I'm gonna go back to about the year 2000, at which point there was a, folks, a group of folks here in Montreal here on unceded Kanyakahaga territory, who uh, were doing prisoner justice work. Some folks in New York City got in touch with them and said, hey, can you guys go visit some prisoners in upstate New York? Because what New York State does as part of the social control, a lot of, a lot of locations do this, including the Canadian federal prison system, is they build their prisons far away from urban centers. And so in the case of New York, what that means is, you know, typically most people who are in prison don't have, like, their families don't have, you know, cars and lots of free time. So if you're upstate, it's very hard to be visited by, you know, people that care about you, people that could support you. And what had happened uh, is uh, some political prisoners coming out of movements like the Black Panther Party, <coughs> some of the white anti-imperialist groups that were working in solidarity with liberation struggles through the... 
60s, 70s, into the early 80s. We're, we're in New York. We're New York State prisoners, and we're held in upstate New York. So basically, long story short, a group of us here in Montreal started visiting uh, several uh, political prisoners and formed uh, really nice relationships with all of them. By really nice, I mean it's, it felt like it was really reciprocal. Sometimes as an outside activist doing prisoner solidarity work, it can feel like it's like a one-way street, like there's lots of ways for you to support the people, like, you know, put money in the commissary or like write them letters and stuff. But we were learning so much from them as well. And I, like, I, I can't emphasize that enough is that like it was a reciprocal relationship from the start because these people are movement elders. And I would say generally political prisoners are movement elders. They're people that have been involved in the struggle long enough and militantly enough that the state has recognized that by putting them away for a long time. And one of the things that political prison in particular does, but imprisonment in general, is create that isolation, create that generation gap where like we as movements have to always like reinvent the wheel because our elders are separated from us by like you know razor wire fences and big walls and a lot of distance. So we, we started to form this two-way relationship but we didn't have a shared project. And then one of those prisoners um, had the great idea of putting out a calendar together. And, you know, it was really quite, quite brilliant on his part, I thought, because a calendar does several things, and, you know, this calendar in particular, here comes my sales pitch, does, does several things. Uh, you got your art, right? Looks nice, put it on your wall. You got your actual calendar part, which people are all familiar with. You can, you know, remind yourself of your dentist appointment or your brother's parole hearing, whatever you want. Um, but you can also, in, in our case, put in a lot of movement history related to particular dates. You know, when was this prison strike? Or when was this revolution reborn? Uh, you know, when was the Battle of Seattle? <laughs> uh, anything, anything you want, really. Um, but then the added value that's not in most calendars, but this is this one, is every month you have an article that goes along with it. So it's really kind of like a calendar slash magazine, because at the beginning and the end, there's all these articles. So... Um, so uh, over time we developed this shared project and we're now in our, our 18th year um, and over time we also decided that like hey instead of just putting out random social justice information we're going to have a theme every year and um, the theme that we came to for this year was health care but you know we've been talking so far this evening about health care and people have brought up that health and care are interrelated but not identical concepts. And we decided to play with that a little bit. So our theme is actually health slash care. Like what is the relationship between health and care and health care? And in the, in the more fully free-flowing discussion that we just had, people brought up a lot of points that I, I wanted to touch on. So I'm not gonna repeat the exact points that people made, but I wanted to expand on a couple of them. Um, it was mentioned the role that uh, health staff within prisons play in, uh, in enacting like the guard role instead of the healthcare role that they're ostensibly there to, to fill. And there's actually a term that's been coined for that. It's called penal harm nursing or penal harm medicine. And there's, a, as, as that comment was being made, uh, it was reminded of a quote from political prisoner Eric King that is, is in the calendar. Um, Everything I need to know about medical care in prison, I learned when a young inmate had a mental breakdown. Five guards rushed him, twisting his arm and jerking his head, stomping <coughs> his back, asserting the will on his body. While a six-foot-four guard stood holding a camera, our head nurse 
was getting in the action using quote-unquote necessary force to help quote-unquote subdue a troubled person. When your health care provider is your attacker or your captor, what chance do you have to get any sort of health care? Uh, this is what the deal is in prison. The nurses hold pepper spray in one hand and a band-aid in the other. And one of those is going to get used so quick it'll take your breath away and it isn't going to be the band-aid. So, and I was reminded of that quote when the comment was made, but I also tell it, you know, not to re-traumatize anyone, because as, as I was reading that, I was realizing, okay, maybe that hits closer to home for some folks in the room than it does for me personally. But um, I think it, it also illustrates a point about the calendar, is that here, that, that prisoner, Eric King, is an anarchist political prisoner. So somebody that, uh, you know, comes from a certain amount of privilege and comes from a movement background before going into prison, um, but then now is imprisoned with, you know, primarily the, the kind of folks who primarily end up in prison. Um, and so then one role that political prisoners can play in general, and specifically in the calendar that they do play, is to kind of be that bridge and say, like, this is what it's like in prison, and kind of translate that into movement terms and be the voice be that like link of, you know, this is the stuff that like most most militant activists are also relatively privileged, right? So like most of us don't have like brothers, sisters, parents, kids in prison, um, and so you know it's one way that we can really like be almost like forced to listen <laughs> to this stuff as they, they hear the stories of political prisoners. Um, but uh, on that same page, the month image. Is, uh, is much more hopeful, and uh, I, I wanted to underline that too. Um, the person that produced this image is, is Debbie Africa of the MOVE organization, and she produced this image especially for the calendar. Some of the images and articles in the calendar are things that people have submitted but that was existing work, but Debbie uh, painted this painting uh, in prison in, in, in Philadelphia. Um, uh, when she heard that our theme was health and care and basically what it is for folks that can't see and I guess also for people who might be listening to this on the radio later is it's a sunrise or sunset but some sort of like beautiful multicolored sky sure yes hold that that'd be great uh, covered with hearts and in amongst the hearts are words of things that uh, that support health but in its broadest terms like mental health emotional health physical etc in a way that to me is particularly poignant if you know that the artist is in prison where she's deprived of sunlight, she's deprived of exercise, deprived of her family. Her, her husband at the time of painting this was also in prison in a different prison. Her son had been born in prison. She was pregnant when she was arrested and so she lost him, like she had to give him up after a couple of days and uh, story has a happy ending, bear with me. <laughs> uh, you know, was, but grew up without either of his parents because they were both in prison for the political work in the MOVE organization. And so from within the prison, she these words that support her health. So it says, keep heart healthy, work, air, relaxation, friends, tea, rain, family, meditation, music, fruit, water, fun, spiritual, socialize, laughter, exercise. One of them is covered by your hand down here. Grains. Um, I had a joke going that, that we were going to get complaints from like people who are on a, a grain-free diet. But <laughs> I, I can get behind the grains. Um, but uh, so she painted this in prison, and then as we were going to press, I need to switch pages. 
after many years of people campaigning on behalf of freeing the whole Move 9, we got to print in our update section this picture of Debbie being hugged by her son, Mike Africa Jr., after she's just been released out of prison and walked out of the prison gates. And then last month, Mike Africa Sr., her Debbie's husband and, and Mike Africa Jr.'s dad, uh, was also released. And this is uh, on the part of, due to the work on the, on the part of many, many organizers, other people in the MOVE organization as well that have not given up on their comrades, um, but also on behalf of one of the groups that we support fundraising with the calendar. Um, so, you know, I just felt like that example kind of tied together, together a few things, so I wanted to share that. Um, but, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm kind of droning on randomly. But um, uh, I think maybe, I don't know how long I've been talking, I have no idea. Could have been 30 seconds or half an hour. <laughs> I think maybe what I'll do is I'll just kind of leave that out there as an example, like Debbie's story as like prison health, what it can take away from you in terms of your kid and you know everything that goes with that, but also just that level of hope that she has and how that hope is related to social justice movements and not, not leaving our prisoners behind. Um, so, you know, hopefully people will ask me questions or make more brilliant comments like comments have been made. And I'll, I'll remember the other points I was going to bring up, but I'll, uh, I'll pass it over to Bill after saying that I'm, I'm glad to be on a panel again with Bill, and I'm always glad to, uh, to do stuff with solidarity across borders, because I just feel like borders and prisons are, are so related. So, yeah, over to Bill. Thank you, Helen. I feel like I talked loud. I don't know if I need this. If I just not working anymore. Okay. Just a frost. It worked halfway. Okay. If anyone does have trouble hearing me, let me know. Je vais parler en anglais aussi. So, so I'll maybe just start. I'll introduce myself. So my name is Bill. I'm a member of Solidarity Across Borders, and I'm with the Support Committee of Solidarity Across Borders. And so what that means is we try to support, in that committee, we try to support people who are facing uh, deportation and people who are living with precarious status. So because of that, partly by definition of doing that, it means at times we're supporting people who are, uh, who are in detention. Um, and uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of health slash care as it relates to immigration detention. Um, and uh, so, uh, so yeah, I always, feel a little bit silly doing this because of course people can share their own stories but people some people have been deported or people who aren't comfortable uh, doing public speaking themselves but uh, I was thinking that I would I would try to convey this just by basically I'll just repeat stories that I've heard from people that we were supporting um, I was uh, um, so around the question of like access to health in the detention center, because I realized before this, I'm like, oh, I don't actually really know much about. Uh, there's a uh, so that for those who don't know, there's an immigration center, uh, de immigration detention center out in Laval, amongst this complex of uh, prisons. So anyone who's held on an immigration order, that's where they're taken. So uh, the Montreal area is kind of unique like that because it's the only center like that in Canada. Uh, in most other places, people are uh, migrants are either held in. Uh, uh, prisons like uh, typical correctional prisons uh, or another kind of uh, like uh, police holding centers things like that um, and uh, and so I realized I'm like oh I don't actually really 
know anything about the uh, like what kind of health services are available there. Uh, so I was like, oh, I don't want to look foolish, so I'm going to look up. Uh, maybe I'll look up some statistics or look up some things like this. And of course, I just couldn't find any information. Um, which is actually pretty typical for most of the immigration detention regime is that it's completely mysterious that we... Uh, so basically most of the things that I'm telling you is not things that I've researched or read about, but things that people have, have told me from their experiences. Um, but uh, So as you can imagine from a situation where there's so little transparency uh, and the power that leaves uh, uh, guards and people in charge like that, that there's... Uh, such a likelihood for abuse and neglect. Um, so, uh, so for instance, uh, a story I wanted to tell, one story of, um, this happened to Lucy Granados. Uh, she's a Guatemalan woman who was actually deported this past April. Um, and after living in uh, Montreal for about nine years uh, uh, without status for most of the time, uh, she got picked up by CBSA, so she was detained. She was arrested very, very violently and was injured as a result of that. And uh, and part of our struggle when we were trying to support her was also trying to get her the care that she needed as a result of that while she was in detention, uh, which is very difficult. Um, so, but the specific story I want to tell because it I think it paints a picture of what care looks like in in an institution like this. Um, so one day. Uh, so she's in detention, this is in the lead up to her deportation, and she's being processed by the CBSA, which is the Canadian Border Service Agency. It's the police force that enforces uh, uh, deportations, uh, and so they're the ones that, uh, for instance, that run the Immigration Detention Center. Uh, you can kind of think of them as like analogous to ICE in the, in the U.S., that kind of thing. So she's taken, uh, one day she's taken from the detention center in Laval to the CBSA offices at 1010 St. Antoine. Uh, to get processed for deportation, and uh, uh, they're questioning her, and she starts to. She has a medical crisis. Uh, she starts hyperventilating, and uh, the CBSA agents, in their own account afterwards, acknowledge that uh, rather than who uh, saw her distress, rather than trying to address that, wanted to uh, uh, just press on with the the deportation proceedings. Um, Oh, yeah, I, feel I could have given a, a trigger warning before. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to give a trigger warning for this. I'm going to talk about lots of terrible things, awful, <laughs> like people uh, people being abused and being treated with violence. Um, um, but so so anyway, so she's she's in this distress, and she's having this, this medical emergency. And, uh, of course, they don't show her any care, and they try pressing on. Uh, and eventually she loses consciousness. And uh, so she wakes up in a hospital downtown. Uh, she's shackled to the bed, not just at her wrist, but her, her ankles as well. Uh, there's uh, two CBSA guards at the door, not letting anyone come visit her. So not friends, not even family visits that even at the detention center she would be allowed to have. Um, and so she wakes up and she's pretty disoriented. and. Uh, uh, so this so this is a story she told me afterwards. So uh, she's lying in the bed, and uh, you know she's asking what happened to her and all this kind of stuff. And at one point, she notices that her finger is bloody. And so she asks the CBSA guards there. She says, "What happened to my finger?" And what he tells her is that when she passed out in the office, the CBSA agents that she was with didn't believe they thought she was faking to try to get out of something. So she's lying on the floor, so what the CBSA agent said is that 
one of them took something from the desk. Uh, she wasn't sure what. She said something flat and metal and tried rubbing it on her, like, forcefully on her finger to try to get a reaction out of her. Just kind of try to be like, God, oh, I got you, you're faking. Of course she doesn't <coughs> react. He says that then she takes, he goes to the desk and he takes a pencil and he stabbed it under her fingernail. Uh, and of course that didn't get a reaction either. And so at that point, I guess they realized they had no choice and they called and they brought her to the hospital. Um, and so just to, just to say, I feel like that example gives us so much of the idea of, if we think of ideas of health and care, what it would mean to show care or what someone would need in that situation or maybe what most of us would receive in a situation like that if we were to pass out or something like that. And the idea that not only that she didn't receive care, but worse than that, that they're actually hurting her, they're harming her. Uh, uh, and that's the, the way that this is linked to her, her, her status as a migrant and the fact that she's detained. Um, and, uh, and also to say, I appreciate that people were bringing up the points around uh, uh, doctors acting as prison guards because also there's so much, uh, the medical establishment I feel like is so implicated in this because when she was in uh, the hospital, uh, the, when she was shackled to the bed, it was the doctor who, uh, who signed off on that. The doctor said, uh, well, there's no medical reason not to shackle her, uh, which was, I thought, just very incredible, too, because at the same time, the doctor was also saying that, that same doctor was saying, well, uh, no, there's, there's no underlying medical problem here. We don't need to do all these tests. We don't need to do all these things that might delay her deportation. Uh, because this is all just, it's stress, it's just psychological. Um, so to me, it's also amazing to say, oh, well, someone's, it's just because someone's stressed and they're in a negative situation. So if someone's stressed, well, there's no reason not to shackle them down. I mean, why would that, like, just the, the logic of it? Um, and uh, so anyway, so it's kind of a, an extreme example of the kind of care people can expect. Um, but I also want to talk about the, the idea of how uh, immigration detention impacts uh, access to health, not just for people who are detained, but for migrant communities in general. Um, and I really appreciate earlier that we were talking about this idea of social control um, and how these systems work, because I think, and I think as prison abolitionists, we often talk about the idea of prison as a form of social control. And so uh, when I think about detention, how that relates to healthcare, I think of, uh, People, people I've known who've been scared to go to the hospital for fear of uh, being, being asked to identify themselves, for fear of, uh, it's ultimately detention and deportation is their fear. Um, and so to give uh, uh, an, an example of that, uh, I think of uh, Kershida Wan, who was, uh, so this was a woman who was uh, facing deportation and was in very, like, uh, pretty dire medical condition who actually took sanctuary uh, in a church uh, uh, as a way to, to not be deported. And uh, at a certain point, she had a heart attack and had to go to the hospital. And so also this kind of tells you a lot too, this idea of like, well, when she's in the hospital, I mean, that was never the place where she should have been. She should have been either in the hospital or at least receiving regular medical care and follow-up this whole time. Uh, but the way that that did not become accessible because she knew that she would be detained if she went. And of course, when she did go as a result of the, uh, the heart attack, of course, CBSA shows up trying to arrest her. 
Um, and uh, uh, so, and I also just kind of want to talk about the idea because I feel like also the examples I'm giving are kind of uh, extreme in the sense of, that they they come with consequences that are so kind of apparent and immediate. Um, but uh, like, as as we were talking about the distinction between health and care, mm-hmm. well. So we're talking about, I've given some kind of examples of extreme healthcare and negligence and abuse. But so in a context like this, how do we start to think about care? And what do we, how do we think about what it actually means to be healthy? Um, and uh, like questions of, of mental health and all this kind of thing, because the other thing that we consistently see is that, of course, detention is really bad for your health. Uh, and that even if you don't have problems when you go into detention, uh, you maybe will by the time that you get out mm-hmm. or over the course of your detention. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when thinking about that, uh, 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 something I often think of is uh, Arash Aslani, who was uh, a migrant who uh, uh, tried for many years, who came from Iran and tried for many years to get uh, status in various European countries, uh, faced detention multiple times and was always refused, eventually came to Canada to try here and was detained for many months. And while he was in detention here, he started, uh, in Laval, he started a hunger strike uh, for several months. And eventually he did win his, uh, he did win his status and he was released. Um, but I always remember when he was talking about his experiences of that, um, he, would, he would talk about the ways that he was mistreated and the impacts it had on him. But he always said, he said, well, they never laid a hand on me. And he said they were always very polite to him. Um, and, but, uh, basic questions of dignity and humanity that, you know, that they would be taking his humanity and taking his dignity, but they would always call him sir while they were doing it. Um, and uh, I think uh, that kind of ties together, I think some of the things that tie all of these together is that all of these things exist in a broader system that's meant to dehumanize people. And especially once someone's been dehumanized, when they're no longer human, then it means something different when they're passed out on your floor. It means something different when they're asking you for help. Um, and it, I think it, it's, it's not surprising that within this broader system that we wouldn't, that these people wouldn't be able to find care. Mm. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, but yeah, so maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. The time is currently 5.57 p.m. and you are listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable and www.ckut.ca. You were just listening to an airing of the recording of the launch of the 2019 Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar that focuses on the theme of health and care. The launch took place in Montreal on Thursday, December 13th, 2018 at Cooper Concordia. For more information on the Prison Radio Show or to check out past episodes of the show, you can go to prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next episode of Prison Radio Show will air on Friday, January 25th at 11 a.m. If you have any questions on anything you've heard on today's show or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. 
If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, postal code H3A2B3. Thanks for tuning into The Prison Radio Show here on CKUT 90.3 FM. Please stay tuned. There, there, there is, there is this thing. Do you realize what is, what is, what is? What there is this thing. Do you realize consciousness is affected? There, there is this, there is this thing on. There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness is affected? There is this thing going on. What is called the news brought to you live, live, live.